Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Okay. So those of you who want to open your Bibles, you're uh, welcome to go with me to, um, to Colossians. We're um, going to do the last sermon from Colossians for this year. And... Um, Yeah, so um, Colossians, just to, to sort of give you context again, just to remind you, uh, it's, it's, it's a book in which Paul, you know, focuses a lot on the, on the gospel and, and how to live out the gospel in every area of life. You know, what are the kinds of things that you need to do to live out the gospel in every area of life? And, um, you know, today's uh, portion is from Colossians 2, verse 16 to 19. And uh, a very powerful portion of Scripture, Paul is, on the one hand, speaking against the false teachers who want to bring all kinds of alternatives in, you know, alternatives to the gospel. Um, but as he corrects them, he's also instructing us and teaching us, you know, uh, what to do. So I'm, let, me, let me just start off by, by reading this portion. I'm reading from the ESV. Um, okay, there we go. So, there is, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, and with regard to a festival, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So, I don't know um, if you guys sometimes feel like this, but... Um, when, um, sometimes when I read something from Paul, I, I read it and it, it's so dense. I think, wow, this is, this is really cool. This is really good, but I'm, I'm not always a hundred percent sure what he's saying. <laughs> you know, it, there's this, there's often so much there that, that you, you, you sort of have to slow down and allow it to sink in. But inevitably when I do slow down and meditate on it and think, okay, what does he mean by this, that, and the other thing, it's always more powerful and more blessed than, than, than I thought it would be. So, so let's, let's dig in a bit. So what is Paul? Just big picture, you know, in these couple of verses, these four verses. What, what is Paul saying? He starts off in verse 16, and he, and he, he says, Let no one pass judgment in, with questions, uh, in questions of food and drink. You know, it seems like he's talking about kosher food laws. Uh, or with regard to a festival, literally in the Greek, it's participation in a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath, or literally Sabbaths, plural. Um, so, so it seems like he's talking about the, the Old Testament laws, and especially the ceremonial laws, and, and it seems like the false teachers are judging people and saying, you're not keeping the food laws properly. You're not, you know, participating in the festivals and the new moons and the, and, and the, and the Sabbath day. Um, the Saturday Sabbath and, and the other Sabbaths, you're not, you're, not, you're not keeping those things. You're not keeping the law. So, and then he says, 
these things, you know, all these things that appear in the law in the Old Testament, they are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Um, so so he's, he's referring to a source of authority that the false teachers are appealing to, which is Scripture. They're appealing to Scripture, but he's saying there's a problem with how they appeal to Scripture because they don't interpret Scripture correctly because they don't understand that the Old Testament Scriptures are just the shadow and Christ is the substance. He's the fulfillment. He's the reality. Okay? And then he goes on and he says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Notice his first said, let, let no one judge you. Now he's saying, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up uh, without reason by a sensuous mount and not holding fast to the head. So, so what he's saying is, he's saying the first source of authority that these false, this false teacher, he seems to have someone specific in mind, um, who is not holding on to the head. Um, he, he says the first source of authority they appeal to in their false teaching is Scripture, but they're misinterpreting Scripture because they're not interpreting it through a gospel lens. They're not, they're, they're not interpreting it in, in, in a Christ-centered way. But then he says, then the second thing, the source of authority they're appealing to is spiritual experiences, asceticism. Okay, we'll, we'll look just now what, what it means. Um, worship of angels. That's weird, okay? Um, all kinds of, you know, going into detail about visions. You know, they're saying you need to trust us and do what we say and, and follow our teaching because we've had all kinds of prophetic visions from God. Uh, and then, you know, puffed up, you know, without reason through the essential minds, you know, reasoning. So um, then he says, but, but this too is disconnected from the head, which is Christ. So they... You know, throughout sort of the history of theology, there's been sort of a debate. You know, what are the sources of authority that you can appeal to and that you can base your teaching, your doctrine, your belief system, and your behavior on? And, and you know, the four that, that people often come up with uh, is uh, sort of as a summary is scripture, tradition. Tradition is what's passed on from generation to generation. Um, reason, thinking, and experience. And, and the thing is, all four of those are legitimate sources of authority, but the third, the, 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 the tradition, reason, experience, must be subject to Scripture. Okay? But Paul is saying here, so, so he, to some extent he mentions all of them. He mentions, you know, the mind. He mentions, um, you know, visions and spiritual experiences and, and, and um, you know, Asceticism has to do with discipline and disciplining your body and, and, and you know, sort of foregoing certain things. Um, so he mentions all those sources of authority, but, and he even mentions Scripture as a source of authority. But he says all of, these, all of these are legitimate sources of authority, but if you divorce them from Christ, if you don't read Scripture through a Jesus lens, through a gospel lens, if you don't interpret your experiences uh, and and, and if your experiences are disconnected from Christ as the head, then these sources of authority are actually dangerous and destructive. Can you see that? And then in verse 19, he says, if they don't hold fast to the head, uh, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together from its joints and, and ligaments, uh, the body grows with a growth that is from God. 
Notice the way he says it. He says the body, obviously the church, you know, if you're doing it right in a way that's connected to Jesus and the gospel, then the church grows with a growth that is from God. That implies that there is church growth that is not from God. And that's, that's very important. There is church growth that is not from God. You know, uh, as a teacher, I tend to be a bit nitpicky about doctrine and, you know, making sure we believe the right stuff and so on. And, and then, you know, when, when, when I talk to pastors, you know, other pastors who, who maybe not so serious about the Bible, they often say, no, but our church is growing. You, you're saying that what I'm teaching here is, is wrong and it's not in line with, with Scripture and it's not in line with the gospel, but our church is growing. And I, I, I want to say to them, that doesn't say anything. The Church of Mormon is also growing. The Jehovah's Witnesses are also growing. The Muslims are also growing. Does that mean that because they're growing that what they teach is right? No, of course not. It's a ridiculous idea that just because a movement is growing that everything that they're teaching is right. There is growth that does not come from God. And we don't want that kind of growth. What we want is growth that does come from God. And he says, you know, sort of, you know, the converse of, of what he's correcting is that if you read Scripture through a, a Jesus lens, a gospel lens, and if you have experiences that flow from Jesus and the gospel that are connected to Christ as the head, then... And then there are certain things that he, he talks about nourishing and knit together and so on. If you do these things, then there will be growth, but that growth will be from God specifically. And that's the kind of growth that we, that we want. Now, um, think about this for a moment. The 16 and 17 talks about Scripture reading and how to do it well. Verse 18 talks about spiritual experience. And how to do it right. The whole of the Christian life is summarized by those two things. If you can read scripture well and experience in the right way what you read, then, 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 you're, then you're set in the Christian life. The better you can read scripture and the better you can experience what you read in scripture the better the quality of your Christian life will be, right? So, so he's saying that, that we must, and, and then, then, then it leads to growth. It leads to individual growth, but it also leads to corporate growth. Growth as a church, our congregation. Growth, in, it applies obviously to, to your small group as well, and to a, to a large extent, it also applies to your family. If you can get these things right in your small group, in your family, then there will be the right kind of growth, growth that is from God in your small group, in your family as well, and in our church. And that's what we want. So, so let's look at these, um, these things. Um, so the 16 and 17 talks about Scripture reading and how to do it well. So he's saying the Old Testament, these Old Testament things, food and drink, festivals, Newman Sabbath, and so on, they are a shadow of which Christ is the substance. And, and literally, <clears throat> it says... Um, these, these Old Testament things are the shadow, and Christ, the word for substance, is, is, is the word soma, which means body. 
you know, in context, it's, it's, it's right to translate it either as reality or substance. But it's saying Christ is the body. And the picture is of Christ as a, as a human being throwing a shadow. Okay? I, I actually got a little picture up there. There we go. Of Jesus throwing a shadow. And what Paul is saying is Jesus throws a very long shadow. He throws a shadow backwards in time into the Old Testament into the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, into the time of Isaiah, into the time of David and the kings, into the time of Moses, all the way to the time of Abraham, and even all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve. Jesus throws a very long shadow. He throws it all the way to the beginning of the Old Testament. And all the things in the Old Testament are actually part of Jesus' shadow that he throws backwards in time. All of them foreshadow Jesus, they are the shadow, he's the substance. And he's saying that is how you must read the Bible. That is how you must read the Bible. In fact, let me just show you a few scriptures that, where you can sort of see that um, these things, where these things come from. We're talking about food and, and, and drink. We're talking about uh, new moon, Sabbath, feast, and so on. So it's in 1 Chronicles 23, 31, it says... And whenever burnt offerings are offered to the Lord on Sabbaths, new moons, and feast days, festivals, according to the number required of them um, regularly before the Lord. So you can see that these things are often mentioned. I, I'm just, these are just representative scriptures together, you know, to represent um, the sacrificial system and so on. Ezekiel 45 verse 17 says, It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings, there's the food and drink, because you also used to eat part of the offerings. The priests used to eat part of the offerings, and the people making the offerings used to eat part of the offerings. So, so grain offerings and drink offerings. At the feast, the new moons and the Sabbaths, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. Can you see that you know, clearly this comes from, um, from, the, from the Old Testament? Um, so Jesus' shadow goes back. Now, what I want you to see there's, there's a big word I want to introduce you to. It's the word hermeneutic. Hermeneutics, not, you know, people ask, Herman who? <laughs> no, no, it's not someone's name. Hermeneutics just means interpretation. Hermeneuo is, is the Greek word to interpret, you know, to, or to explain. So, so your hermeneutic is how you interpret Scripture. Now, what I want you to see is that this is Paul's hermeneutic. His hermeneutic of the Old Testament is that it's full of the shadow of Christ. And I must find the way that that shadow... Now, when I throw a shadow on the ground, that shadow looks a little bit like me. It, it sort of has my general form, depending from which angle the, the, the light of the sun or, the, 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 or whatever the lamp comes from. It doesn't look exactly like me, but it, but it sort of looks generally like me. It points to me. You know, and wherever my shadow is, I'm close by. And when you see the form of my shadow, you have an idea of what my form is. You know, I, I look a bit like my shadow, or more, imp more ex exactly, my shadow looks a bit like me. Now, what I want you to also see is that this is not just Paul's hermeneutic. This was the general apostolic hermeneutic. This is how the, the, the apostles and the early Christians interpret the Old Testament. Well, the Scripture in general, but the Old Testament in particular. In Hebrews 10, verse 1, it says almost exactly the same thing. For since the law has but a shadow of the, thing, the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same 
sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. You know, because people ask often, you know, you you say you must interpret all of the scriptures through a gospel lens. Because we say the gospel is truth to look at, it's truth to look through, and it's truth to live out. Okay? But the Old Testament doesn't contain the gospel. But we know the Old Testament does. Explicitly, sometimes in messianic prophecies and, 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 and stuff like that. But implicitly, in the fact that it foreshadows. There are objects food and drink that foreshadow. There are festivals, activities that foreshadow. There are people that foreshadow. I mean, Jesus is the second Adam, the new beginning, the beginning of the new creation. Jesus is the son of David, the king who will sit on the throne of David and rule the kingdom of God like his father David. He's the prophet like Moses who will lead his people in a new exodus from the, um, you know, being subject to sin to, to the promised land, etc., etc. you know. Every priest points to, to Christ as the ultimate priest. Every prophet points to Christ as the ultimate prophet. Every king points to Christ as the ultimate king. So this is how the, the apostles read the Old Testament. Now, the question is, do we read the Old Testament like that? Because Paul is saying, if you want to hold fast to the head, You need to be able to read the Bible in such a way that you see the head, Jesus, in all of this, in all of the Bible. One of the things, one of the steps to holding, clinging to Christ, holding fast to Christ as the head, is being able to see Him in all of Scripture. Can you read Scripture like that? Um, Let me maybe just be a bit more specific about that. I mean, we see, just mention it, in, in Luke 24, we see Jesus teaching this hermeneutic as well to the, to the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So can you see, when you see that all the scriptures that come before the Old Testament as containing the shadow that points to Christ as a substance, can you see how you can find Christ in all the scriptures now? Okay? Now, he talks about a few different things. He talks about festivals. Now, the festivals happened yearly, like Passover or Pentecost. And we know Jesus died on Passover as the true Passover lamb. He poured out the Spirit on Pentecost. The, the law was given on the first Pentecost at Mount Sinai. It was the, outpour, out, the giving of the law. And the giving of the Spirit as the law written on, the, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of our hearts, was given on Pentecost. That's when, when, when God made the new covenant with the church, and the church was basically launched. Um, That happens annually. Every year you have these festivals that come around. Every month you have the new moons as a new beginning. And he's saying, but those new beginnings only point to the ultimate new beginning, who is Jesus. Every week you have Sabbath days, the seventh day Sabbath, the Jews, that's a Jews feast. So you rested on the Sabbath day. And And he's saying, you need that same regular cycle of weekly, so yearly, monthly, and now weekly rest But that rest, the ultimate rest actually points to Christ because it's not just your work that you need to rest from, but the the work underneath the work, the trying to earn, to deserve, to be good enough. And then he talks about food and drink. And daily you need food and drink, multiple times a day. Most people eat two or three times a day, okay? So daily, weekly, monthly, annually, all these things that we do repetitively, all together in some other way point to Christ. They foreshadow Christ. 
Um, so participation in these things should make us think about Christ. Um, let, me, let me give you a few examples. Let's take food and drink and, and maybe a festival like Passover together. The first Passover, you had food and drink. So, you know, it happened when the Israelites, during the Exodus, when the Israelites were leaving the, the, uh, Egypt and, and slavery in Egypt and going to the promised land. And we now all know the story about how the ten plagues and how God used the ten plagues to, in a sense, beat Pharaoh with his hardness of heart into submission to a place where he eventually said, okay, fine, just go, you know, just leave us, you know. Um, and, you know, obviously Pharaoh there represents the devil that, that God has to subdue. Um, Egypt represents the world and our slavery to our sin. And, and here's the thing. The last plague was the death of the firstborn. Now, if that is a shadow, what is it a shadow of? Jesus' salvation, but specifically Jesus' salvation to everyone, because how, if, if people need to die for their sins, how, how many of the Egyptians were supposed to die for their sins? Was it just the firstborn? All the Egyptians were supposed to die for their sin, right? And yet, God in His grace, even though the Egyptians didn't repent and you know, didn't apply any blood or any such thing, as a foreshadowing of what He would do, He allowed the firstborn to stand in the place. So instead of killing all the Egyptians, like they deserved to die, He killed only the firstborn died in their place. In other words, He was showing how the firstborn, and remember Jesus is the firstborn, can stand in the place of, as a substitute for, and die in the place of, the others. So you can see the death of the firstborn points to Jesus, the ultimate firstborn. And then for the Jews, the Passover lamb that was slain and then the blood was painted with um, little bushes of hyssop. Hyssop was a bitter herb. It represents repentance. So they would dip it into the blood. And through repentance, we can paint the blood of the lamb onto the doorposts of our hearts. And then the death angel passes us by. And they ate the lamb and they drank the cup. And 2,000 years later, in, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus takes that festival of Passover and he takes the bread that is broken there. And he, interestingly, there's no lamb mentioned because the lamb wasn't on the table because he was sitting at the table, the lamb of God. So he takes the bread, breaks it, and says, this is my body broken for you. He takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, one of the four cups of the Passover cedar, the Passover meal. Can you see how intricately all of these things foreshadow Jesus? And how when you read the Old Testament in understanding how it foreshadows Jesus, that you see, can see Jesus and the gospel in it. And then you read it in a profitable way that actually changes your life and makes you more like Jesus. Does that make sense? Um, in John 5... I think I put it up here somewhere. Yes, there we go. John 5, verse 39 to 40. Um, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You search the, search the scriptures because you think that in them you may have eternal life. And it is they, these scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And one of the things that Jesus often fought with the Pharisees about was the Sabbath. Because they were fighting with Jesus and his disciples because they didn't keep the Sabbath. Sometimes they would 
travel or, you know, pick grain on the Sabbath and stuff. And then the Pharisees would freak out, you know, uh, why are you not keeping the Saturday Sabbath holy, you know, as the law commands? And, and Jesus said to them, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, you don't understand what's going on here. That, that Sabbath rest actually is just a shadow. The substance is my... I remember um, uh, in, in Stellenbosch once, uh, a, a young man who was a Seventh-day Adventist came to me and said, no, you know, Christians are supposed to keep the Sabbath. God has never revoked, you know, keeping the Sabbath. And I said, Christians are free to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. Obviously, Sunday is the first day of the week. It's not the seventh. So Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. And the reason why we meet on Sundays is not because it's a new, different Sabbath for Christians as opposed to the Jewish Sabbath on the seventh day. It's because Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week. So it's the beginning of the new creation. We celebrate, and that's why it's called the Lord's Day in, in the book of Revelation. It's because the Lord was res- resurrected on Sunday. Okay? So we're celebrating the new creation, and we're celebrating the fact, here's the point, that the seventh-day Sabbath in the Old Testament was just a shadow, and the, and the fulfillment of that is in Christ. In other words, our ultimate rest is not in a day, but in a person. It's in Jesus. And when you're in Christ, you are actually celebrating a perpetual Sabbath. You are resting seven days a week in Christ. And you're absolutely welcome to take one of those days, and it can actually be any of them, and make it your practical Sabbath. So that one day in seven you're resting. In fact, you should do that. That's why God established that rhythm of working six days and and resting one day. If you're working seven days a week, you you weren't entirely designed to handle that. So you need to actually rest. But it can be on the seventh day, it can be on the first day, it can be on the third day. It doesn't really matter what day it is. But the point is Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Um. So, so Paul is saying, don't let, don't let people judge you for your Christ-centered hermeneutic, for seeing the fulfillment and that you are obeying all of those things in Christ. Don't let anyone judge you for that. I, I must not let that Seventh-day Adventist come to me and say, no, I'm actually doing better and obeying Jesus better than you are because I'm keeping the Saturday Sabbath. No, he's not. In fact... In fact, he's focusing so much on the shadow that he's missing the substance. So, then Christ-centered uh, uh, spiritual experience. In, in, in verse 18, Paul mentions different spiritual experiences that the false teachers were appealing to as sources of authority. But they are all destructive, not because spiritual experiences are wrong, but because they are you know, ex- experienced apart from Christ. He says, let no one disqualify you. And then he says, by insisting on certain spiritual experiences. You see, the problem is not spiritual experiences per se, but when we take those spiritual experiences and say, you must have this spiritual experience, otherwise there's something wrong with you. You must have that spiritual experience to be good enough, to qualify. If I am having this spiritual experience of having all kinds of visions, or I'm you know, fasting a lot and beating my body into submission, then I'm actually a better Christian than you are. Paul says when that starts happening, there's, there's a problem because you're actually divorcing your spiritual experiences, which are not bad per se, but you're divorcing them from Christ and the gospel. And then they actually do become destructive. Okay, so um, 
in our tradition, we're in sort of the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, the danger for us is supernatural spiritual experiences. Oh, if I speak in tongues, then I'm better than you. Or, oh, if I get visions and dreams, then I'm better than you. Oh, if, if, if you know, I experience all kinds of miracles, then I'm better than you. That's the danger for us. Now, now all of those things, tongues, visions, healings and stuff, are, are they bad? No, they're great. But when we start saying, getting puffed up by them and saying that I'm better because I have them, then it's a problem. And when our focus shifts away from Jesus to the spiritual experiences, then it's a problem. And, and, and the sad reality is that there are two things that have undermined the revivals that have taken place throughout church history more than anything else. The one is false teaching, deception and false teaching, the kind of thing that Paul's addressing here. Make sure you read scripture through a Jesus lens, through a gospel lens, otherwise you're going to misunderstand, you're going to have false teaching. And the second thing is a focus on spiritual experiences rather than on Jesus. Isn't it ironic, the very two things that Paul warns about here are the very two things that we see in history. Over you know, thousands of years of church history, almost every revival that ultimately fell apart, fell apart because of those two very things. Can you see how relevant this is? Um, so he talks here about asceticism. Um, and let me maybe just throw up the, 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 the next couple of verses because it sort of shows us what it means. The, the word translated there, asceticism, uh, okay, so it's a hectic word. I can't even, I'm not even pronouncing it right. It's, it's actually quite a common word in the New Testament. It means humility or lowliness. Um, but I think when we read it in context here, you'll see why they translate it as asceticism. And, and I think it's a good translation. It says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, um, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. There's that very same word, you know, uh, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, so what he's saying here is, he's using this word in the context of regulations, all kinds of prohibitions, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, um, you know, severity to the body. So you can see why, trans, why they translated asceticism, you know, withholding certain things from yourself. Um, so Paul is saying, he's not saying that asceticism, fasting or uh, disciplining your body, he's not saying that that is bad, but he's saying apart from Christ, it is bad. Okay? So, and, and, and we mustn't insist on those things because the only thing we can insist on is Christ because Christ is the only one that, that really saves. Uh, then he talks about worship of angels, which is very strange. And it shows you that, because, I mean, the festivals, the food and drink and so on, makes you think that this is like a Jewish thing, an Old Testament thing. But there's no way in the Old Testament that you're ever told to worship angels or where you can get this. So, so these angels are probably the same rulers and authorities 
that Jesus put to public shame and triumphed over through the cross. That is mentioned in the very previous verse, in verse 15. Okay, And if it is these rulers and authorities, they were worshipped by the locals in that time. Then it means that what these false teachers are doing, they're not just taking parts of Scripture and misinterpreting them because they're not reading it through a gospel lens, but they're also taking cultural stuff, stuff from the culture of Colossae, because in Colossae they did worship all kinds of spiritual beings, rulers and authorities, angels, fallen angels, basically. So they're taking that and they're incorporating it into their Christianity. It's called syncretism. Have you heard the word syncretism? It means to amalgamate or put together or join together um, incompatible religions or cultures or philosophies. And that's what they were doing. And that's what many Christians do. If you just look in South Africa, so many Christians are taking new age ideas and mixing it with Christianity. So many Christians are taking ancestralism and ancestor worship and mixing it with Christianity. So many Christians are taking materialism and, you know, neo-Marxism and stuff and mixing it with Christianity. And the same danger that, was, that Paul was addressing in Colossae is still happening today. People are mixing other things with Christianity. And you end up worshipping angels or, you know, worshipping the ancestors or you know, whatever else the case may be. Um, and then he says, you know, going on in detail about visions. And, and, and what Paul is saying here is, I mean, you, you, you cannot, visions and stuff are good. Paul even talks about having visions himself, but you cannot base your doctrine on visions. You cannot base your, your whole belief system just on visions apart from Scripture and apart from Christ. That's dangerous. And then he, then he says that when you operate apart from Christ, you know, you become puffed up, you know, and, and, and your, your mind, controlled by the flesh, will, will lead you to become puffed up and to, to um, you know, bring all of those wrong things into your belief system. So he's talking about Christ-centered scripture reading plus Christ-centered spiritual experiences as opposed to the wrong spiritual experiences of the, of the false teachers. If you take those two things together, then... You are clinging to the head who is Christ. And then it leads to growth that is actually from God. But he specifically, and I want to end with this, says, so, so I just wanted to, to get this. He says, if you read Scripture correctly, in a way that's through the lenses of Christ, and if you then experience, have spiritual experiences that are in line with Scripture, not divorced from Scripture, but in line with Scripture and connected with Christ, then it will cause you to do two things. Jesus, whom you are connected to, because you're constantly reading about him in Scripture and experiencing him as you live out Scripture, you're experiencing him as the head, will cause you to do two things. He'll use you to nourish his body. If you can just bring up that Scripture. Uh, the, oh, I'm supposed to bring it up. Here we go. <laughs> He'll cause you to nourish. You see the second last line? The body will, The whole body will be nourished and be knit together. So this, this is so obvious that we can almost miss it. That means every Christian has to do three things. The whole body has to do three things. Number one, the whole body needs to make sure, everyone in the body needs to be, make sure that they're connected with Christ. 
that they hold fast. And the word there, kraton, for hold fast, actually is, is quite a, a violent word. It's quite an intense word. It, it means cling to. It means grab hold of and hold on to tightly. You know that, that song, Bombalela? Hold on to Jesus. Hold, that's, that's what it's talking about. It's like hold on tight to Jesus. So every one of us as Christians must, uh, must make sure that we hold on tight to Jesus. And then Jesus can use us to do two things. To nourish the rest of the body. It says the whole body is nourished. One of the things that Jesus, as you hold on to him and are connected to him, wants to use you to do is to nourish the rest of the body. It, that means that each one of us, every single one of us, has something to give. And the word nourish there means to support. Um, let me just see. I think I, I, I wrote it down here. Um, it, it means to, to supply or provide at your own cost, usually, that which is needed for another's well-being. Okay, so each of us has something that we can supply, that we can provide, that we can use to nourish the people around us. And if you're connected to Jesus, Jesus will use you to do that. And the second thing is knit together. Each of us has the ability to connect with the rest of the body next to us, like sinews and joints, to connect with the people around us in our small groups, in our families, etc., and hold them in place. You see, those are two of the most fundamental things that a body needs to be healthy, to be held together. If, if parts of you start falling off, then you're not healthy. <laughs> and if, if, if you don't receive the nourishment that you need, the water and the food and whatever you need to grow, then you're also not healthy and you die. And Jesus wants to use you and me to do that. So we need to be connected to Christ so that so every day of every week, as you move as part of the body, the church, you must be nourishing others and holding others in place. Promoting the growth and the well-being of others in the church and the unity and connectedness in the church. And it says then, when that happens, the church grows, the body grows with a growth that is from God. Can you see that? So I hope some of the confusion of when we first read that portion, you know, of what Paul was actually saying is, is, hopefully it's not just, okay, this sounds nice, but I don't understand what it's saying. Hopefully you can see that what Paul says here makes absolute sense. Learn to read scripture well through a, through a Jesus lens, through a gospel lens. Learn to have spiritual experiences in line with scripture that is connected with Christ and that flows out of Christ. And that'll cause you to do two things, nourish the rest of the body and hold the, the rest of the body in place so that the end result is the whole body grows with the growth that, that is from God. And you can do that in the congregation, you can do it in your small group, you can do it in your family. I think those are great secrets for spiritual growth. And they're actually so simple. They're so simple. How do you grow spiritually? How do you help the people around you to grow, grow spiritually? Just do what Paul says. It works. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.